0: want us to take and understand and make our own. I want us to understand how this sort of ties in with the, the rest of what we are looking at. This is not an isolated sort of island of truth floating around in, in the book of Ephesians, but it ties into what went before. Last week we looked at the first part of Ephesians 1 and we saw all of the blessings that God has given to us in Christ. Ephesians 1 verse 3 says that God has blessed us, like it's done, it's finished. He's He's granted to us every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ. Paul, has, Paul then went through and, and labeled and, and, and cataloged for us the fact that we've been chosen in Christ, that we have been adopted in Christ, that we have been redeemed in Christ, that we have been had our, our eyes opened in Christ, and just a vision of what God is doing in the world and the mystery. He showed us that we have been inherited in Christ, that we have become God's sealed possession. But the question then becomes, how do we access and enjoy those riches? How do, we, how do we sort of live those out in our daily daily lives? That's what this prayer is about. Have you ever lost a password before? How many of you have ever been locked out of an account because you couldn't remember your password? And then you go through all the steps to like reset it. Like, what was your grandmother's cousin's dog catcher's middle name? And where did they go to school? And you reset it, and you're like putting a new password. And they're like, you can't use that one. That's your old password. And you're just like... Well, imagine how bad you would feel if you were Stephen Thomas. Stefan Thomas was a, uh, or is a, um, like an investment guru in the San Francisco area. And actually, just a year ago, a news story broke in the New York Times that he had lost the password to the hard drive that had all of the codes to get his Bitcoin. And... He had two tries left on the password. He couldn't remember what it was. He lost the paper where he'd written it down. And he lost $220 million because he couldn't find that password. To my knowledge, he never was able to access that $220 million. It was his. It's sitting there. It's on the hard drive. He can't get to it. It's like the money's there in the ATM machine, and you get there, and you're like, I can't remember my PIN number. And you can't access it. A lot of Christians live their Christian life like Stephen Thomas. We've got all the riches and the resources of Jesus that have been given to us through his death, his burial, and his resurrection. But we don't know how to access them. We don't know how to take those blessings that we cataloged last week in Ephesians 1, 3 to 14. We're like, that's awesome. Okay, how do I then bring those into my daily life to where I am living in a different way? Here's the impression I get reading the passage we just read a minute ago. God has so much more for us than we are experiencing the power that raised jesus from the dead paul is like that's yours christians it's working in your life and yet we're content to just sort of live it, to live this boring ordinary walk in this rut kind of way in our christian life show up to church listen to a sermon go home and just kind of nothing changes in our lives ephesians 1:15 to 23 is the password, if you will, to get to the hard drive. It's the PIN number to unlock the funds that are in the account. And here it is very simply, prayer. This prayer that Paul lays out is him simply praying the things that he already said we have in Jesus. So you notice back in Ephesians 1 verse 3, he calls calls God the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians 1 and verse 17, He's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, there's these echoes from the God that he addresses in chapter 1, verse 3, is the same God he addresses in chapter 1, verse 17. Throughout this prayer, he picks up on themes of things that he already said, these are yours. Ephesians 1, verse 8, he says that God has abounded to us in all wisdom and understanding. Comes back around to say, okay, God's abounded to you in wisdom and understanding. Now I'm praying that God would give you wisdom and understanding over and over again he says okay you 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 have been enlightened but i'm praying that you would know what this calling is that idea of calling is very closely linked to the idea of being chosen first part of ephesians 1 he's saying, you've been chosen in christ he's saying i want you to understand the hope that came along with that package He had talked about the fact that we have been inherited in Christ in in verse 11. He then comes back around to say, I want you to know what is the the, the riches of the glory of his inheritance in verse 18. In other words, here's what he's doing. He's saying, here's what God has promised to you. Here's what God has given to you. It's yours. And now I'm coming around and praying that God would make that a reality in your life. He's not praying for, for something that God has not promised. Rather, he is taking the promises of God... And he's saying, God, would you make this a reality in our lives? Now, some people would say, well, if God's already promised, why bother praying it? Prayer is the key that unlocks the promise. Prayer is the way that these become functioning and active in our lives. So Ephesians 1, 15 15 to 23 may be the key for you to, to really living the Christian life in a way you've never lived it before in unlocking what God has given to you in Christ. We access our spiritual blessings through prayer. This is not a prayer for God to give us something we don't already have. Rather, it is a prayer for the enjoyment of the blessings we already possess. Now let me prove that to you. Look in chapter 1, verse 15. Wherefore, uh, literally, because of this, but Paul is saying, because of what I said in verses three to fourteen, I'm now going to pray. This is not a prayer that's just a random thing that popped into Paul's head, but is closely linked to the prior paragraph. Very simply, here's the message in a nutshell. We must pray for the enjoyment of our blessings in Christ. Not just to God, would you bless us today? We use that word blessed in such a trivial way. We don't even know what we mean when we say it. Like, God, would you bless them? Would you be with them in a special way? Would you bless this, bless that, bless this? Where Paul's like, you've already been blessed. You don't need to pray for more blessings. You don't need a second blessing or an extra blessing. You already have it. Now pray it into a reality in your life. So let's walk through these requests that Paul has Number one, if we're going to unlock and enjoy the spiritual blessings that we have in Jesus, we should pray that we would know God's grace. I guess we want to be more precise. Pray because we know God's grace. So verse 15, Paul says, Wherefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, cease not to give thanks for you, making mention of you in my prayers. Paul's reporting to the, the, the believers in Ephesus and the other people reading this letter. He's like, I've heard this report of your faith and your love. How can Paul know that the people he is writing to have been chosen and redeemed and sealed? The way he knows that is true is they've believed in Jesus. Believing in Jesus is the proof that you have been chosen and redeemed and sealed. Okay, that group of people who have been chosen, redeemed, and sealed are the one and the same group as those who are believing and resting their faith in Christ. So Paul's saying, for this reason, I'm thanking God. I'm thanking God as soon as I heard. So here's Paul. He's under house arrest in Rome. He's getting reports from these churches that he started in Asia Minor. And they're saying, hey, Paul, they're continuing to trust in Jesus. And not only that, they're loving one another. You see, faith in Jesus, if all of us have faith in the same Jesus, one of the fruits of faith in Jesus is love for each other. Faith in Jesus will evidence itself in love for other believers. We can have all the faith in the world, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, but if we do not love, we're a sounding brass or a tinkling cymbal. We get a faith to remove mountains, but if I have not love, I am nothing. Faith evidences itself and proves itself in love. So that's the proof. They believe in Jesus. They love each other. It's that simple. Now, notice who he gives the credit to. He doesn't say, I'm praising y'all for your awesome faith and love. Good job, Church of Corinth. Who does he thank? He thanks God. Because God, based on what we saw last week, is the one who creates that faith. God is the one who creates that love. It's not a human work. It's not a human action that we sort of drummed up enough faith and love in us to where Paul's like, good work. The fact that he thanks God is evidence that God is the one who gets the credit for this. Verses 3 to 14 in action. Your faith and your love in the Lord Jesus. That's the sphere where this faith is operating. This is not just a, hey, remember back in 1973 at VBS, I believed in Jesus. This is Paul describing a faith that is ongoing and continuing trust, continuing confidence in Jesus. So look at verse 16. Paul hears this report and he says, as soon as I hear it, I cease not to give thanks for you. Now, this doesn't mean that Paul literally, from the time he woke up, was just, thank you for the Ephesians, thank you for the Ephesians. But he's saying this is on a regular basis. He's thanking God for his grace in their lives. Sociologists will talk about the fact that we have a bad news bias. Right? You, hear, you hear news, and we tend to assume, well, of course, because we live in a fallen world, right? We live in a world where bad stuff happens. We typically don't hear news and think, well, it's probably not that bad. We t- hear news, and we tend to think, it's probably worse. We hear about someone who believes in Jesus, and we tend to think, yeah, but it could be fake. We have this bad news bias where we tend to think the worst of people around us and be cynical about them. By the way, we don't do the same in our, in our own hearts. Paul has a very different attitude because he understands God's grace. That he hears this report of the faith and the love in the lives of the believers, and what does he do? He thanks God. He's overjoyed about the fact that they have faith and love. He doesn't immediately see the glass as half empty to be like, ah, but there's these other things they don't understand. He's like, this is awesome. Look at God's grace in the lives of other people. What if you took your church directory this week in your devotions, Instead of just praying generically, God, would you bless everybody in Cloverleaf and help Pastor Sam to preach better sermons, amen, you instead went through and you went name by name and you thanked God, thank you God for so-and-so's faith in Jesus that you wrought and their love for the body of Christ. How would that change your attitude towards the people in this church if you were routinely thanking God for his grace in their lives? Do you think it might make you more attentive if you're regularly thanking God for certain people? So then you notice God's working in their lives. Look, God's doing more of the same thing. That was Paul's attitude. In just about every letter he writes, he breaks out right at the beginning of the letter in gratitude for what God has done. In a world that is cynical and pessimistic and cruel, Paul's example calls us not, not just, oh, everything's great, but to look for evidences of God's grace in people's lives and then thank God for it doesn't mean that they have all of their acts together, but it does mean that God's grace has brought them to saving faith in Jesus and has brought this love in their hearts. So understanding God's sovereign grace, some people will say, well, if God is sovereign, which is what we saw a lot of last week, if God is saving his elect people, Why bother praying if God's going to do what God's going to do? For Paul, the logic is the opposite. He's saying, because God is sovereign and is saving and working all things according to the counsel of his will, because of this, I thank God, and it brings me to a place of prayer. Verse 16, I'm making mention of you in my prayers. The fact there's a God who is working his sovereign will in the universe is the very reason why we should pray. Listen, if God is not able to do stuff, why bother praying to him? If God cannot save sinners and break through hard hearts and overcome resistant wills, why are you wasting your time asking for God to save people? The very fact that we pray to God and ask him to do stuff is a testimony that our hearts recognize, God, you're in control. So sovereign grace does not sort of throw a blanket on the fire of our praying. It actually breathes more life and heightens the flame of our praying, that God is in charge, that he is in control. So as we pray to unlock these blessings, we pray that we would know God's grace and we would see it in each other's lives. Paul has taken time to reflect on this. You see, sometimes we don't enjoy God's blessings because we're not looking for God's blessings. We don't enjoy God's blessings in the life of Cloverleaf Baptist Church because we've not taken time to say thank you, God, for your grace in saving people within this church. Thank you, God, for your grace in bringing about a group of people who love one another, contemplating, reflecting on what God has done. But here's a second way that we should pray. We should pray that we would know God's glorious character. So verse 17, Paul comes into the requests themselves. He says, I I cease not to give thanks for you, verse 16. I cease not to make mention of you in my prayers. And here's what I'm praying. I'm praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. Now, it's kind of convoluted syntax, but that last phrase is the most important part. He's saying, I'm praying that God would work in such a way that you would grow in your knowledge of God. The first request out of Paul's mouth for the church at Ephesus is not, God, would you make sure that they're really prosperous and everybody stays healthy? The first prayer out of his mouth is, God, would you help them to know you? That's profound. The way we should be praying be praying for ourselves and for each other is that we would be a church full of people who know God. And I don't mean just know God and like, oh yeah, I know Jesus, I got saved. But in a growing kind of way, towards this goal of this increasing knowledge of God, a parallel passage in Colossians 1, which is a 20 epistle Paul sent it at the same time. Paul is praying that you would increase in the knowledge of God. Right, That's what this prayer is, that we would press on to know more and more of God. You say, well, I already know God. No, God is infinite. We're never going to exhaust what it means to know God in all of his glory, in all of his attributes, in all of his infinitude. You know what we'll be doing for all eternity? According to John 17, 3, this is life eternal, that they may know thee and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. For all eternity we will be increasing and growing in knowing more and more and more and more of God. He's inexhaustible. He's infinite. Now, notice how he is described. It's not just an experience if I know God and I have sort of melted into like a water drop in the ocean where I'm absorbed by, he's not talking about that. He's talking about real knowledge of God, a real relationship where we know God as he is. So notice how he is described. He's praying in verse 17 that we would know God as the Father of our Lord, or or the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's telling us what he means. The God that we are to know is the God who is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're not just talking about the generic God of, in God we trust. Like, well, who's that? We're talking about the God who is the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. The God who is Trinity. This is not the Unitarian God of Islam. Allah of Islam and God of the Bible are not the same. They're different in character. The God of the Bible is Trinitarian. It's the triune God who is the Father of Jesus Christ, the giver of the Holy Spirit, the God who is one God in three persons. We're not talking about three gods. We're talking about one God who exists in three persons. The Trinity is is on display here. We have the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've got the Father and we've got the Son. We've got the mention of the Spirit of wisdom and revelation. That's God, the Holy Spirit. The God we are to know is the God who has revealed himself as the triune God. I think we don't spend enough time thinking about that. Like, all oh, the creeds and the, you know, all that stuff, that's all church history, and they read that in some church somewhere. The Trinity is essential to our faith. If the God you know is not the triune God of Scripture, then you do not know the God of Scripture. And if he is a triune God, that means he is inherently relational. Relationship is not something that God does, it is something that God is. From eternity past, before the world was, he existed as God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit in this beautiful relationship of mutual love. And you know what, beloved? We get into that. We've been invited to be part of that relationship with this God who is just exuberant in his love. He's called the God of our Lord Jesus Christ. That "our" is so warm. It means that this is a communal thing. It means that it is a relational thing. But he's also called the father of glory. This could just mean that he's a God who is marked by glory. But the way this is worded literally is he is the father of the glory. He is the source of all glory. If we're going to give glory to God, it comes from him and we reflect it back to him. He's a God who is marked by glory, surrounded by glory, and exuding in glory. All the actions he takes in history and in his creation are for his glory, for his supremacy. He has saved us to the praise of the glory of his grace. And brought us in. And he's also the giver of the Holy Spirit. He says, we're praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Now, a lot of translations will lowercase the spirit, little s spirit, will give you sort of a a, human spirit or a human capacity of wisdom and revelation. Here's the problem with that. Revelation means there's a revelator, right? There's someone who is revealing stuff to us. And guess what? We don't reveal stuff to ourselves. God is the one who reveals secrets. He is the God who gives his spirit to reveal stuff. That's something the Holy Spirit of God does. Isaiah eleven two describes the spirit of Yahweh, and he is the spirit of wisdom and of knowledge and of revelation. Here we've got all three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now, why is Paul praying for God to give his Holy Spirit? You're like, I just read Ephesians 1, verse 13, that... The moment that I trusted in Jesus, I was sealed with the Holy Spirit. Right? The moment you got saved, God the Holy Spirit came to dwell within you. Paul is not praying that we would get like, well, like a second giving of the Holy Spirit. But wh- rather what he is praying is, you have the Holy Spirit, but now I'm praying for the Spirit to do this work in your life so you can know God. We cannot know God apart from his revelation in Jesus and apart from his revelation by his Holy Spirit. It is impossible We do not know God through scientific inquiry. We don't know God through sort of logical, rationalizing analysis. We know God as he has revealed himself and as he makes himself known to us. In the Old Testament, the high point of Israel's worship was that once a year time when people were, not even the people, where the high priest representing the people would go into the Holy of Holies. One time. What Paul is saying is that we as believers have access into the very holy of holies, the very presence of this God all the time. We don't just watch as someone else goes in. We ourselves go in. We ourselves can know this God through prayer. This is what Christianity is all about. It's not about keeping a bunch of rules and going to church and being moral. It's about a relationship with this God. That's Paul's main request. Everything else, grammatically, if you notice how this is put together, that's sort of his main request, and then everything else is sort of like a, you know, subsidiarity of this. It's just sort of a breaking this down a little bit more, that we would really know, God, that's what he has saved us for. But we move on. Paul then breaks this down a little bit more. Verse 18, he says, The eyes of your your understanding better reading, the eyes of your heart being enlightened. He's talking about something that has already happened. Okay, When you got saved, God opened blind eyes to see him. Right, That's part of the new birth. God God gave you spiritual sight when you were spiritually blind. He says, that's already happened. With that already happening, here's what we're praying, is that you would know, and then he lists out three things that he wants us to know, the hope of his calling, the riches of the inheritance, and the greatness of his power. So let's break those down a little bit. Here's the, the third request to unlock the, the blessings we have in Christ. Pray that we would know God's calling. And you say, what is God's calling? Now, people use that word calling to be like, I feel God is calling me to go get married or go be a missionary at such and such a place. We're not talking about that subjective sort of experience. The way Paul is using calling and the way Paul almost always uses calling is the call to saving faith. So God is saving people and there's that time in your life, remember when you came to faith in Jesus, you maybe heard the gospel many, many times, but there was a time you heard the gospel and a light bulb went on. You heard the gospel and you're like, I want to come to faith in Jesus. That's what we're talking about calling, the effectual call of God where he brings us to saving faith. Paul's like, you've come to faith in Jesus, but I want you to know the hope that comes along with it. Now, here's what biblical hope is. It's not hope that, well, I hope that God calls me to do such and such. Well, it's because he has called me, there's this hope that I have for the future. Hope, biblically, is not just, oh, I hope such and such happens, but it is the confidence. It's the expectation that God will finish what he has started. We saw this last week. Look at verse 10. That in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he may gather together in one all things in Christ. Like God's going to remake the entire universe one day. We find out in verse 14, we have the Holy Spirit as the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession that God is going to bring us all the way to glory. One day we will stand in his presence. One day we will no longer deal with sin. One day we will no longer experience temptation. One day there will be no more suffering. All of the former things will be wiped away. And we will be in the presence of Jesus, immortal and glorified and joyful for all eternity. That's the hope. And Paul is saying, I want you to know that hope. We live in a world of so much pessimism and anger. Even though, by the way, objectively, our world is so much better than it was 200 years ago Um, like life expectancy and wealth and and quality of life, all of these things, we're all convinced that it's like it's horrible. So we're, we're not naturally hopeful. But even as Christians, we look at the culture around us, and there's, there's some real problems in our culture around us. We just get so down in the dumps, and this is just awful, and we're, we're just going to wait for Jesus to come. We as Christians, you read the New Testament, here's one thing you should take away. Christians should be the most hopeful people on the planet because we know how the story ends. We know the one who is writing the story. We know the one who is controlling the story. We know the one who is working all things according to the counsel of his will, according to verse 11. Nothing that is happening is by mistake. So the hope of our calling, Paul is saying, I want you to know that hope. It's going to be the fuel for you living the Christian life. Think about this. If someone were to come to you and say, hey, I've got a workout program for you. You're going to go to the gym every day. It's going to be really grueling. You're going to do like this mashup of CrossFit and P90X and marathon training. Really, really tough stuff. But you're not going to lose any weight. You're not going to gain any muscle mass. It's going to be totally miserable the whole time, and there's no chance that it's actually going to work. Is there anybody who's like, yes, yeah, sign me up? Like, No, no, we don't, we don't persevere in tough things that we don't think will work, right? But if someone's like, hey, this workout program, you come and do this, you're guaranteed to lose weight, to be healthier, to have more like, energy, and it's going to be great, you'll be healthier, it's probably going to add, studies show, like three years to your life, you'll be like, okay, I might actually stick with that if I think it's going to work. If you don't have hope for the end of the story turning out the way that the Bible says that it will, there's no reason for you to go to war against sin. There's no reason for you to struggle against temptation. There's no reason for you to be patient when people are being horrible and nasty to you. There's no reason to show love to your spouse when they're trying to you. Why bother? It is the promise of God. So Jesus puts it this way. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God It's the... He puts the promises of God before us to motivate us to live faithfully today. 1 John 3 says that everyone who has this hope in himself purifies himself. The fact that we know the end of the story motivates us to be holy. But a fourth request for which we must pray, to unlock these blessings. We need to pray that we would know God's grace. We need to pray that we would know God's glory, that we would really know God personally. We need to pray to know the calling and the hope that comes with that. But fourthly, we need to pray that we would know God's inheritance. Paul goes on to say this in verse 18. He says, okay, I'm praying that you would know the hope of your calling. And then he gives us the next, the next object here, that you would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. So we get this chain of the, the riches of the, of the, of the, of the. And then at the end of it, we have the of him. Now, there's two ways we can read this, that we would know about the inheritance that we're going to receive one day. So, you know, you you, you kind of read in the will. You find out, oh, one day I'm going to inherit all this stuff. Paul could be saying, understand the will to understand what you will inherit one day. He could be saying that. There's other places where he talks about that. But look at how it's worded. He's saying, I want you to know the riches of the glory of whose inheritance? His inheritance. In the saints. What Paul is saying is, I want you Christians to understand that you are God's inheritance. You are God's inheritance. That almost sounds blasphemous. Here's the idea of this. In the Old Testament, people would have land that would be passed from one generation to the next generation. That land would be their inheritance. To refer to inheritance and inheritance is to refer to what is yours what you possess. So to put it this way to say we are God's inheritance doesn't mean that like somebody's going to die one day and then God gets us. It's to say that we are God's possession. We are God's treasure. And by the way, this language runs throughout the Old Testament. I was reading this week in the book of Exodus, Exodus 34 verse 9 and it jumped out at me because I was thinking about this. Exodus 34 verse 9. Uh, Moses is having this discussion with God after the, uh, the golden calf incident. And he's saying, God, would you please stick with us? Would your presence stay with us? Moses bows before God. And then he says in, in Exodus 34, verse 9, If now I have found grace in thy sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray thee, go among us, for it is a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for thine inheritance. We get that language again in Deuteronomy 4.29 and Deuteronomy 9, and it's throughout Isaiah, God referring to Israel saying, Israel, you're my inheritance. It's an image of God saying, you're my people. So in the context here of Ephesians 1 verse 18, the emphasis is not on what you and I will inherit one day, though we will inherit glory one day, though we will inherit just joy in God's presence. The emphasis Paul, Paul is making is to say, Christians, I want you to understand that you are possessed And valued by God. That you are possessed and valued by God. A lot to untangle here, but the point is to say we are destined for final glory and we belong to God and we are His. And notice how He sees us. He looks at us not as a nuisance to be tolerated, He looks at us as an inheritance that He treasures. The glory that we have, the glory of the inheritance, is the glory that God has given to us. Okay, there's nothing in us that God's looking at and being like, well, Sam is really bringing a lot lot to the table. No, everything that we have is stuff that he's given to us. The image in the Old Testament is a bride in all of her garments. But here's the thing. The bride didn't come up with the garments. The bridegroom gave them to her. The beauty that you and I have that is attractive and beautiful to God is the beauty and the glory that God himself gave to us. What is it that God looks at in us as Cloverleaf Baptist Church and finds attractive? It's not the the obedience and the effort and all the stuff we do. It's what God has given to us in Christ. And so it all starts with him. He gives us glory. He gives us riches. He gives us righteousness. Which means this. God's love for you is not at all dependent on your performance for him. Say, so I went and did my devotions today. God must be really, really impressed with me. Like, I've read a whole chapter of the Bible. No, God's love for you is based on the glory and the beauty he has given to you in Christ. So many Christians live on this roller coaster. I'm happy I'm sad based on what I do or don't do. And, and, and listen, we should live to please God. We can indeed. What we do does please God. But our fundamental standing before God, the value God places on us is not based on what we've done. This is so freeing and liberating, because some people grew up in a, in a setting where it was all about legalism, it was all about keeping the rules, and if you don't keep these certain rules, God is going to smash you. Like, oh, be careful, little hands, what you do, or the Father far above will smash you like a bug, is where so many people live their Christian lives, rather than saying, I'm accepted in Christ. Just ditch all the silly man-made rules and efforts where we try to sort of make him love us more, when he already loves us infinitely in Christ, and sees us as glorious and rich. Now, if you hear this, you say, "Well, of course God values me because I'm so special." You've missed the point. The gospel makes it really clear that there is literally nothing in us of ourselves that that pleases God. There cannot be. If you're here today, you're not a Christian. You're like, hey, I'm coming to church, I've just got questions, and I I have doubts, and thanks for being here. The first step to becoming a Christian is realizing, I've got nothing to offer God. I've got nothing that's going to sort of please him or placate his wrath. The only one who can truly please God is his beloved son in whom he is well pleased. That's Jesus. That's not you. That's not me. It's Jesus. And when we get in a relationship with Jesus, God looks at me as his own son. How do we get there? Through repentance and through faith. We are valued by God. Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would get this because we don't naturally think this way. We naturally think the other way. We naturally go into the performance mindset of, I got to do, 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 do. Paul is saying, I'm praying that you would understand this, that you would know this. This is one of those things that we don't just sort of grasp by hearing at one time. This is some, a truth that is only grasped on your knees. But the fifth and final request, and this is the longest, Paul starts it in verse 19 and takes it all the way down to verse 23, is that we would know God's power. So I'm praying that you would understand and know God's power. Now notice how he piles up all of these words to show us the greatness of the power. So I'm praying that you would know, verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power. He just like stacked up all of these adjectives like, hey, There's power, you're like, hey, cool, power, I understand what that is. There's great power, and then there's exceeding great power. This is power that is sort of cast beyond the limits of power. Power where you're like, here's your normal graph, and then it suddenly shoots up to the stars. That's what we're talking about. The the graph has been obliterated. The gauge does not read this kind of power. It's a power so great that the creation of the universe is just a little blip on what God is able to do. It's a power so great that the fiercest hurricanes and the fury of the greatest explosions and the greatness of the strongest earthquakes is no comparison to God's infinite power. The greatest explosion ever created by human beings was called the Tsar Bomba. It was in the 60s. The Soviet Union was, uh, was experimenting with you know, different types of um, explosions and, and, and like a hydrogen bomb. And they're like, let's make the biggest one there is. Um, There's a website online, I'm just kind of weird like this, that lets you pick your town and then say, what happened if that bomb got blown up over Mobile? Um, Hopefully that never happens. What the Tsar Bomba would do would be to destroy everything in one fireball all the way from Pascagoula to Pensacola. Like everything just scorched, like nothing left. Shockwave, like really, really bad stuff. Like in an instant, like there wouldn't be any evidence that we were ever here. Well, that's really, really powerful. Well, the power of God is the power that says, let there be light, and there's light. The power of God is is in six days to create the universe and everything that's in it and all of the laws and all of the energy that exists in the universe. And Paul is saying this, Christian, that kind of power on that scale, notice what he says in verse 19, is working in you. This power is to word who believe. Power that created the universe is doing a work of recreation in the universe in such a way that if any man be in Christ, he is what? A new creature. A brand new creation. God's in the process of recreating the entire universe and he's already started. Whenever a sinner comes to faith in Jesus, brand new creation, the power of God at work in your life And we think that that's not going to change our lives. Like, there's a whole theology out there that says, yeah, you can be a believer in Jesus, and it mean like, absolutely nothing in how you live your daily life. You can just be a carnal Christian your whole life, never bear any fruit, never be, be changed in any way, shape, or form, and then go to heaven when you die. Baloney. If God's power channeled through the gospel is actively working, well, I've got my free will. Okay, the power that made the universe is stronger than your will, Okay? Like, if you think your will's that powerful, we need to bring it down a notch or two. God's able to do what he wants and to work mightily and powerfully in our lives. I'm convinced that we settle for so much less than what God has for us. We settle for just doing church the way that we've always done church. We settle in our lives for just struggling with the sins we always struggle with, for living our marriage on this very earthly kind of plane, when God's like, I've got something so much better for you. Do you believe that our God is the same God of Paul? Do you believe that our God is the same God who unleashed the great awakening through the ministries of men like George Whitefield and John Wesley? Do you believe that our God is the same God of Charles Spurgeon or D.L. Moody or Billy Sunday or Billy Graham? I submit to you, we have access to the exact same resources that all of those individuals had. That doesn't mean that God's obligated to work for us in the same way he worked for them. There's not a formula where we're like, well, let's manipulate God to get the same results. Uh, That's missing the point as well. But to say, let's believe that God is able to do something awesome through Cloverleaf Baptist Church. Let's believe that God could could bring a revival and awakening, like the awakenings he brought in the past. Let's believe that God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, Ephesians 3. Paul does not have any room for a Christianity that's doctrinally correct but ethically powerless. He doesn't know that kind of Christianity. Yes, our theology matters. I'm really big on right theology and exegeting texts properly. But Christianity is more than just getting it all right. It's about the power of God at work transforming our lives. Now, what's the supreme demonstration of it? I think when I think of God's power, I tend to think about God's power in creation. You watch a hurricane roll in, you're like, wow, that's pretty powerful. You read about like nuclear explosions or like the, the power in the sun, it's crazy. And then you're like, you read and you're like, there's stars out there like Betelgeuse and Canis Majoris that, are, that make the sun look like a little speck. You're, wow, that's really powerful. Or God's able to make woodpeckers so that they can like beat their brains against a tree and not mess their brains up. That's pretty sweet. God's able to create stuff in the ocean, like down in the Mariana Trench that looks so freaky. Yeah, he made that. But you know where Paul goes when he's like, let me show you God's power. He doesn't take us to the top of a mountain or to the bottom of the sea. He takes us to the empty tomb. He says, here's God's power, which is working in us, which he wrought in Christ. Now, there's a word play here. The word translated working in verse 19, according to the working, it's the same, it's, it's the noun, and then we got the verb in verse 20, which he wrought in Christ. So it's according to the working of the power which he worked in Christ. Same power that worked in Jesus is working in us. So what did it do? How did God demonstrate his power? Well, first off, he raised Jesus from the dead. We're so familiar with that story, uh, the death of Jesus, the burial of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. If you don't believe that, you're not a Christian. It's the foundational confession that Jesus is Lord, that God's raised him from the dead. But Paul is saying that's the supreme demonstration of God's power. We think about all the scientific progress that's been made in our world in the last 200 years. Like life expectancy has gone for like 40 years to like 78 years. That's amazing. We've defeated all of these diseases. We're not like worried about getting polio. It's really impressive. But you know one thing science cannot do is defeat death. All it's been able to do is sort of delay it a few decades But in the grand scheme of things, so what? In the grand scheme of things, you might go to the gym every day and eat only salads and extend your life like six months. But we're still going to die. In Christ, God has defeated death. And for those who are in Christ, death has been defeated for us. And one day we will enter into that eternal life because God is just that powerful. Not only did God's power raise him from the dead, look back in verse 20, it set him at his own right hand in the heavenly realms. So Jesus rises from the dead, he ascends to heaven, he sits at the right hand of the Father, which is to say he's in the place of prominence and power and honor. He's been exalted. Now, Paul is giving, is sort of riffing on Psalm 110, verse 1, where David writes, The Lord, okay, Yahweh Jehovah, said unto my Lord, Adonai, Sit thou at my right hand until I make thine enemies thy footstool. To say that in the ascension of Jesus, there is complete triumph and victory over every enemy of God. Satan is defeated, sin is defeated, death is defeated. This is a statement of victory and of enthronement that Jesus even now rules as king from heaven's throne. One day he's going to return to exert that. But he is king. He is lord. He is the master. Every enemy lies crushed beneath his feet. Now, it's an image from the ancient world. You go to war against another king, you defeat them. And to symbolize just the complete totality of your victory, that king would be made to lie before you, and you would put your foot on his neck to say, I've beat you. Right? He's tapped out. He's done. Jesus has done that with every enemy. His foot is on the neck of all of his enemies. Now look at how extensive this is. He seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Psalm 110, verse 1. Just in case you're wondering, like, well, is there still kind of a you know, battle going on? Or could someone come and beat him? Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come. Now, if we fast forward to Ephesians 6, we find out that these terms, principality, power, might, dominion. These are references to spiritual powers in the universe. We're not just talking about, like, presidents and prime ministers. We're talking about demons and archdemons and Satan himself. Jesus has gone toe-to-toe with the kingdom of Satan and has won. And he's far above. There's not even like a, well, just a little bit. No, far above, infinitely above all of these enemies... By the way, does that not change when when in Ephesians 6, Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Take take unto you the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. To know that Jesus has already defeated those enemies that we are called to stand against. He's not saying, go into battle, you probably aren't going to make it, but give it your best shot. He's saying, go into battle, I've already won, this is a mop-up operation. God's power raised Jesus from the dead and seated him at his right hand. And there's only one enemy that remains to be defeated. According to 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-six, the last enemy to be defeated is death. One day Jesus will return and death itself will be cast into the lake of fire. There's going to be no more death in the eternal kingdom of God. We go on, verse 22 of our text. Here's the the third way God's demonstrated this power in Jesus. He's put all things under his feet. This is a different image. This image goes back to Genesis, where God creates Adam and Eve in this perfect environment, and God says, I'm giving you dominion over the whole creation, right? Now, Adam then tries, he's not happy with being a vice regent under God. He's like, I want to be God, and he tries to sort of to to break the bounds of sort of creaturely authority to become God. He loses that dominion. He blows that dominion. Psalm 8, 6 celebrates the dominion man has. As says, you have put, speaking of mankind, you've put all things under his feet. God's given man dominion over creation. But you know what the New Testament writers do with that? They say, that's about Jesus. It's not about you and me. It's about Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills what Adam messed up in the garden. Uh, Hebrews 2, you can read it this afternoon, describes Jesus is the one that God has put all of creation under his authority, under his dominion, and one day he will exert that rule. So if you like taking, taking notes or writing references in your Bible, next to verse 22, put the reference Psalm 8, verse 6. We're getting these fulfillments of these promises in the book of Psalms. God's put all things under his feet. And then verse 22 changes the metaphor. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. All that authority, all that power, all that dominion, all that might that Jesus has, he exerts for the good of his church, for the good of his children, for the good of his people. He's not some megalomaniac Saddam Hussein kind of dictator who's taking, using his power to put gold toilets in his palace. He's using his power for our eternal good and our eternal glory in him. That's what verse 22 is saying. He's exerting that power for his glory for our good. He's made him to be head over all things. He's given him to the church. Jesus is the gift to the church. By the way, church here is universal. It's not just, well, only Cloverleaf has this. No one else does. The church, all believers worldwide, throughout history, comprise the church of Jesus Christ. And he's the head over it. It's his body. Jesus doesn't have a bunch of bodies. There's one body of Christ, this church. And he says, it's the fullness of him that filleth all in all. That phrase, uh, dozens and dozens of pages I read this week in the commentaries about what that means. Here's the idea, is God has given all the riches of Jesus to the church, to where the church can be called the fullness of Christ, we're not lacking anything. These are our blessings we have in Christ. We unlock them by praying like this. Don't lose sight of everything that we just looked at today is a prayer. It's a prayer. What's your prayer life like? What kind of requests do you take to God? I would venture to say that all of us would benefit by taking Ephesians 1, 15 to 23, opening it up, maybe putting it into our own words, and praying like this. Not just for yourself. This is not, God, would you help me to have this? But notice these are all our and us. Pray like this for Cloverleaf Baptist Church. What if we as a church committed to praying like this for our church, and we would know God's power, and we would know the riches, and know God. What if we were a church that was running full tilt towards God? I think we'd have unity because we're all going in the same direction. We would have passion. We would have power because we would be tapping into the very power source of the universe. I want us just to bow right now and go to God and pray like that. God.